please open your Bibles with me to the book of the Psalms. The book of the Psalms. This morning we're looking at Psalm 58. Now we see here in this psalm a trial of sorts where the judge of all the earth brings forth these charges against the wicked. Luke records in the book of Acts how that our heavenly father hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And that, my friend, is the God-man, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so as we read through this psalm, the Lord enabling, the Lord willing, I pray we will be comforted afresh to rest in knowing how that Christ our Savior is our advocate before our Heavenly Father. And so I trust that no one that loves him will be offended if I take the language of our brother John as my own. Beloved, these things I preach unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If any man sin, if anyone sin, my friend, does that include you? It most certainly includes me. And so if, or I believe it would do no damage to the text to render, or when you sin, beloved, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Believing sinner, he is the propitiation, the sin-atoning sacrifice for our sin. Indeed, Christ is the sacrifice for the sins of his people, and he is the advocate who ever liveth to plead his blood for the forgiveness of sins of his people. I find that so comforting, how that if Christ is both my sacrifice and my advocate, I must be found not guilty. Because the one who's pleading for me is the one who made me not guilty. You see, the Father has given all judgment into the hand of the Son. And so now, beloved, because of what Christ has accomplished, through his doing and dying, no believer has any reason to fear the judgment. Indeed, no believer has to fear the judge because the judge, beloved, is our Savior. Indeed, nobody knows better than our substitute that the debt of our sin has already been paid in full. He paid it, and so he knows very well that the penalty owing our sin has been paid in full. You see, our Lord knows he's made his people innocent. Indeed, he's made every blood-bought sinner not guilty before himself in love. And so on the day of judgment, Christ, our Savior, will be the judge of all men. And as such, he will not only be the advocate of the believer, but further to that, he will also be the prosecutor against the unbeliever. In Matthew chapter 25, those who thought they were righteous, those that thought they did all these wonderful works, Christ is the one who listed all the charges against them. All the things that they did not do, 
You see, he's the prosecutor, and he will be the judge to give sentence, to cast them into hell. Now, while Christ is the prosecutor against the wicked, he is also the defender, the advocate for his beloved people. And so we see the Lord as defender for his people, the prosecutor, the judge, and the executioner against all those who are not. Now, here in our text, we see Christ as the prosecutor against those who do not believe, who do not belong to him. And he begins to speak these charges. This morning, I want us to carefully consider these charges against the wicked. Now, I have three things for us to look at. And the first thing is this. First, Christ is prosecutor, or rather Christ as the prosecutor, charges the wicked with perjury. Verse 1. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O congregation? Do you judge uprightly, O ye sons of men? Now, though the religious claim to be righteous by what they do or don't do, but the problem with that is this. God says all of our righteousnesses, all of our so-called good works are filthy rags. You see, my friend, even our best deeds are defiled with sin. But since the self-righteous think that they're righteous, they think that they're qualified to sit in judgment of others. And this is what the Lord asks of them. Do you judge righteously? Are you judging these matters truly? I think of our Lord's description of those that trusted in themselves as being righteous, how that they despised others, how true it is. Have you ever noticed how often people who are self-righteous, that when they judge others, they think that they're the only ones who are righteous? And so the self-righteous think that they're the only ones that are capable of judging and they're the ones who are the most critical of others. And so we read the prosecutor asking them, is that an upright judgment? Are you judging truly, honestly, uprightly, both when you judge yourself and others? And notice the prosecutor is telling them, in effect, no, you're not. You're not speaking uprightly. You're guilty of perjury. You're guilty of lying to God. You're guilty of lying to yourself and guilty of lying to others. And then he charges the wicked with enjoying violent crimes. Verse 2. Yea, in heart ye work wickedness. Ye, ye weigh the violence of your hands in the earth. He charges them with planning violence in their heart. You see, sin is a heart problem. Where is it that he says that you're doing violence? It's in the heart. Yea, in heart ye work wickedness. You see, that's where the problem is. The wicked are cold, calculating murderers. And all they're doing is carrying out what they've already purposed, what they've already weighed to do in their heart. You see, they weigh wickedness in their heart. They weigh it. They calculate it. And so say to themselves, this is what we should do. You see, just like a just judge weighs justice in his heart before he gives sentence, the wicked weigh out this wickedness in their heart and they're determined to do it. And then they deliberately carry it out. Isn't that exactly what the Pharisees did to our Lord Jesus Christ? They weighed out that violence in their heart. Even though he's righteousness itself, even though he's righteousness personified, 
They couldn't find anybody to bring any charge against him, yet they hated him in their heart. And that's why they pursued him unto death. And false prophets of our day do the same thing. They know exactly what they're doing. They're carefully planning it out in their heart. Their wicked plan. How they can deceive the hearts of the simple. And then they go about carrying it out with a message of lies. They know exactly what they're doing. And it starts with the wickedness in their hearts. And nothing can be more violent, more destructive to the souls of men than a false gospel. And that's what the prosecutor is exposing here, the wickedness that they plan in their heart. And then thirdly, he charges them with an unholy, unrighteous nature. Verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Now here we see the root of the problem. It's our nature. You see, we do what we do because of what we are. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because our nature is a sin nature. And the only thing a sin nature can produce is sin. Now this speaks of the total depravity of man. The total depravity of every one of us gathered here this morning. Beloved, you already know it. How that when we read in God's word, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We know that ought to read, my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. That's why David prays in another psalm, Lord, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Now this uh, expression here, they go astray as soon as they be born, speaks to who we view as the sweetest and the best among us, our babies. You see, it's not like we're born good and then we learn to be bad when we get older. And that's kind of what we seem to think, is it not? But beloved, that's not what God's word says. Rather, we come forth from the womb speaking lies. And why is that? Because we're conceived and shaped in iniquity. And so the baby is born. And mom changes its diaper and powders and pampers it and puts it down for a nap. And then that baby starts to cry. And there's nothing wrong. That baby just wants to be picked up. And so it cries and cries, trying to make mom think something's wrong. So she comes and picks it up. You see, it's true. We come forth from the womb speaking lies. Indeed, a baby lies before it knows any words. That sweet, innocent-looking baby so cute, we think our hearts are going to burst. But still, nevertheless, that baby is a sinner. It's got the nature of its dad. And that's the sin nature every one of us is born with. And David says that nature is estranged from God. And that means it's turned aside from God from the very moment we're conceived. Our nature is to turn aside from God. And after we're born, our natural inclination is to go further and further away from God, if we can, because our nature is estranged from him. Indeed, it hates God. And my friend, that nature cannot be changed. It can't be improved. That nature can't be made to love God. It can't be made to start acting better and obey God and quit sinning. Rather, the only thing that nature is good for is to be put into the grave. 
And that's what the prosecutor is pointing out, how that sin nature will always be a danger to us and others until it's put into the ground. Now, that's a serious charge. You see, it's our nature that's unholy. And then fourthly, the prosecutor charges the wicked with refusing to repent, refusing to submit to Christ. Verse 4. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf adder that stoppeth her ear, which will not hearken to the voice of charmers, charming never so wisely. Now our babies come forth from the womb showing us that they're sinners because sin is already coursing through their little bodies, just like the poison of a snake. You know, a snake is a snake is a snake. No matter how small it is, no matter how big it is, no, how, no matter what color it is, you know it's a snake. And the same is true with a sinner. A sinner is a sinner is a sinner. No matter how small a sinner may be, no matter how big a sinner may be, no matter what color he or she is or where they come from, a sinner is a sinner is a sinner. But here's the thing about snakes. While you can't charm or tame our sin nature, snakes can be charmed by music and put into a calm trance by playing and waving an in, around an instrument. Now, when we think of snakes, we think of an animal that's wise and crafty. And indeed, our Lord teaches us to be wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. And so snakes can be charmed by music, and they seem to be wise. But you see, we are such serpents by nature, we can't be charmed. Our nature can't be tamed, and it cannot be wise. David also writes, They are like the deaf adder that stoppeth her ear. An Englishman, uh, a fellow from the 19th century, uh, a clergyman and schoolmaster at that, he remarks, according to tradition, the asp stops its ears when the charmer utters his incantation by implying one ear to the ground and twisting its tail into the other. We get the phrase deaf as an adder, which which means to be willfully unhearing. Uh, one other writes in, in his book, Right Ho Jeeves, how much you may behave like the deaf adder of Scripture, which, as you are doubtless aware, the more one piped, the less it danced. And so these snakes don't want to be charmed, and they try to put their ear to the ground and plug it up with their tail. And so this is what David's speaking about here. They're trying to stop up their ear, so they don't hear that music. They don't want to hear the words. So they can't be calmed down and tamed. And that's exactly the nature of man. That's every one of us by nature. We cannot hear the gospel. Because by nature, we're deaf to God. Deaf to spiritual things. We cannot hear it because we're rebellious by nature. And so we stop up our ears. So we cannot hear the gospel. Now you hear it. You can't stop yourself from hearing it, but left to ourselves, we won't believe it. Left to ourselves, we won't receive it. We'll just continue refusing to bow to it unless God does something for us. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. And let's look at this helpful illustration. Beloved, we hear the music of the Gospel and what sweeter music is there to hear than the gospel of forgiveness of sin 
and salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. What sweet music, but by our nature, we won't hear it. We won't believe that gospel song. Matthew chapter 11, verse 15, our Lord declares, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous, and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. You see, it doesn't matter what tones you play the gospel in. You can play the gospel music in a serious, somber tone. You can play it in an upbeat, happy tone. But it won't matter. People won't mourn and they won't dance. They just refuse to hear the good news of the gospel of Christ left to themselves. And the great charge against men in the judgment will be this. We've heard the gospel. We've heard of Christ. We've heard, but we refused to hear. We refused to believe. We've heard of Christ, but we refused to come to him begging for mercy. We've heard a good report, and the preacher is going to say, but who's believed our report? Well, by nature, no one will. Apart from God's saving grace, no one will, because by nature we cannot hear, and we would also refuse to hear. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherein he, he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Beloved, by grace ye are saved. Now here's the second thing, the punishment the prosecutor asked for. First he asked to make the wicked powerless to hurt anybody ever again. Psalm 58, verse 6. Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Break out the great teeth of the young lions, O Lord. Now, if you would turn with me to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. Job gives us a little bit of commentary on what we see the prosecutor asking. Lord, make them powerless to hurt anybody ever again and make them to perish. Job 4, verse 9. By the blast of God they perish. And by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perisheth for lack of prey and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. You see what he's saying? Just break their teeth out so they can't hurt anybody ever again. Have them to just die of starvation. Now, the first thing we think of is a powerful lion being destroyed. That lion, Satan. Do we not? And certainly that will happen. Christ has already crushed his head. He took his power away at Calvary. And one day, Satan is going to be put out of business. One day, he's going to be put where he can't hurt anybody ever again. And you know, that's going to happen to everyone who follows Satan. So you see, this is serious business. And my friend, if you're not following Christ, 
If you're not following Christ, you're following Satan. There's only one of two ways. It's one or the other. And those who are not following Christ will be destroyed. Christ asks here that the wicked be made so that they can't hurt his people ever again. Now, they would if they could, would they not? You see, they would devour you who believe if they could. But the son here asked the father, just break their teeth out of their mouth and put them where they can't hurt my people ever again. And my friend, the son always gets what he asks for of his father. So this judgment will happen. And so, beloved, don't be worried about those enemies of the gospel. For one day, they're going to be put where they can't hurt anybody ever again. Second, he asks, make the wicked to not even be seen anymore. Verse 7. Again, Psalm 58. Verse 7. Let them melt away as waters which run continually. When he bendeth his bow to shoot his arrows, let them be as cut in pieces. This is what he's saying. Let them be no more. Let them melt away just like the water that runs downstream and eventually dries up never to be seen again. That's what he's asking. They used to be here, but just put them away. Let them melt away never to be seen anymore. Let them be put to death never to be seen again. Lord, draw back your bow and let the arrows of your holy justice fly. Right now, justice is being held back. But in that day, he's saying, send out your arrows of justice and cut them in pieces till they die the second death and are not seen anymore. Though our enemies look mighty to us now, one day, beloved, you won't be able to see them anymore. And so that's what he's asking for. And the son is going to get what he wants. Thirdly, he asks that they be destroyed by their own nature. Verse 8. As a snail which melteth, let every one of them pass away like the untimely birth of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Now, from what I've read about snails, they make their own way in their own slime. But if they move about in water that's salted, the slug overproduces its own slime and it dissolves and dies a lingering death by dehydration. And so this is what David's asking. Let the wicked be destroyed and devoured by their own impure nature, by their own sin. Just give them what they deserve. Just give them what justice demands and let them not be seen anymore. Let them be dissolved, never to be seen again, like a stillborn baby. Now, this is serious business. This is what David is saying here. How that it's better to have not been born at all than to be born and die in our sins. If you would turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Now, this, this is what this untimely death is referring to. It's a, a baby being stillborn and dying at birth. And he said that it's better than living a long life and dying in your sin. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 3. God's word declares there in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 3. If a man beget an hundred children and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, 
and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. You see, it's better to die at birth than to live many years, have a hundred children, but in the end to die in your sins, dying without God's grace, without forgiveness. It's better to never have been born than to not know Christ. That's what he's saying. All right, here's the fourth thing he asked for, that they be taken away in the just wrath of God. Psalm 58, verse 9. Before your pots can feel the thorns, before your pots can feel the thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, both living and in his wrath. Sweep them away in the whirlwind of your holy wrath, and that's going to be the end of everyone who dies in their sin. Because the curse of sin is death. And this is the eternal death, the second death. And the thorns here represent the curse of sin. Beloved, the thorns of our sin can't produce anything life-giving. I suppose in the desert sometimes they got those little thorny bushes and they try to get them together and burn them under a pot to cook. Well, those thorns can't produce any warmth. They can't produce anything to heat up, any spiritual food in the pot. And so everything is going to be suddenly swept away by the whirlwind of God's wrath. And it shall be no more. Now that's the judgment coming to the wicked. Indeed, as we read in the last verse of John's Gospel, chapter 3. If you would turn there with me. John's Gospel, chapter 3. Speaking of the salvation of the righteous and the just judgment of the wicked. In John chapter 3, the last verse, verse 36, we read, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Right now, beloved, you who believe on Christ, you have everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now we've listened to these serious charges. We've listened to these serious punishments due to the wicked. But now let's listen to the hope and the rejoicing of the righteous. Beloved, this justice, this judgment will be carried out. And though it's hard for us to imagine it right now, beloved, when it happens, we're going to rejoice. Verse 10. The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. The righteous is going to rejoice, but not with the feelings of revenge. It's not like, well, I bet you wish you'd listen to me now. I bet you'd paid attention and you didn't hate me. You see, it's not like a feeling of revenge. Rather, they're going to rejoice because Christ, their Savior, has been vindicated before every creature and all of creation. And so you see, our Savior is triumphant over every enemy. And though we don't see it now, but we will see every enemy put under him. And then we will rejoice, beloved. But during this time state, to think of these judgments coming on those that we know, those that we love after the flesh, for now, of course, that makes us sad, very sad. But nevertheless, in that day, beloved, we will rejoice. 
You know, it's a good thing that we're sad. You see, that's godly sorrow that makes us want to preach the gospel more faithfully, more fervently. It makes us want to seek God's will and to seek his spirit to enable us to preach the gospel, to freely send forth the gospel of his grace given to us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. You see, my friend, this reality, his life in us, giving us power, makes us feel urgent about this matter of preaching and worship. Now, it makes us sad now when it seems so few of our family and friends believe the gospel. But in that day, there will be no sympathy for traitors against our God. There'll be none. For all of our allegiance will be with Christ our Savior. We will say amen to everything he does. For you see, the damnation of sinners is not going to mar the happiness of the saints in glory. Nothing will mar your happiness and glory, beloved, even the judgment of the wicked. The righteous are going to be rejoicing. They will rejoice to see Christ, the captain of our salvation, returning from the battle after he has destroyed every enemy. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63, if you would. Isaiah chapter 63. Where David says he shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Isaiah 63 tells us what he's talking about. None other than Christ our Savior returning from destroying every enemy. Isaiah 63 verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, travailing in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. That's Christ, our Savior. He speaks in righteousness. He's mighty to save. And the church continues asking there in verse 2, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? And Christ Jesus our Lord answers, verse 3, I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. Beloved, this is speaking of Christ going in and stomping out his enemy just like they go and stomp upon grapes to make wine. This is the Savior going in and stomping out, just obliterating every enemy and their blood has stained his raiment. That's him washing his feet in the blood of those that he's crushed. You see, when the church sees our Savior finally victorious over every enemy, we will rejoice forever, my friend. That's what the righteous shall do. Now, I can see that from Scripture, uh, doctrinally speaking, how that these things must happen. But here's my problem. Am I among those made righteous by Christ? Am I one of them? You know, hearing those charges brought against the wicked gives me cause to fear because this is what I know. I'm guilty of all those charges. I've got the same sin nature that they have. And so how is it that I can think that I'm going to be spared this damnation, this coming condemnation? I mean, I, I don't want to be just, you know, fooling myself. 
And so, is there any way I can know that I will be spared from this damnation? Is there any way I can know that I will be spared from this condemnation? Well, there is. Remember David's cry? We looked at that last week in Psalm 57. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Damn me not, condemn me not, O God. Be merciful to me. How can I not be destroyed? I'm guilty, just the same as the wicked. I've got the very same nature as they do. So how can I not be destroyed in that day? Just one way, beloved, just one way. In my refuge, Christ Jesus, the Lord, our substitute. Verse 11. So that a man shall say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judgeth in the earth. Now there is a reward for the righteous, and the reward for the righteous is the righteousness of Christ. It's innocence in Christ. It's forgiveness of sin in Christ. Indeed, it is Christ himself. It's having our sin paid for by the blood atoning sacrifice of Christ. That's the reward of the righteous. It's eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. The righteous are born guilty of all the very same sins that shall destroy the wicked. But there's only one reason the righteous are not destroyed. And why are they not destroyed? Because, beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ bore all of our sins and all of our guilt at Calvary. And he died there under the wrath of his Father to satisfy justice for us, fully, completely, and to the uttermost. You see, by nature, you and I are guilty of claiming a righteousness that we don't have. We have a sin nature. And all it is, is sin. Same as the wicked. But Christ, our substitute, is our righteousness. You see, it's not lying for the righteous to say we're righteous. Sinner, if Christ has been made your righteousness, let me restate that. If Christ has made you righteous, you're righteous. You're innocent. You're holy because Christ, our Savior, allowed himself to be made sin for his people. He took all of the sin of his people, that mountain of sin, and took it in his body on the tree and put it away once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. He was made sin, satisfying every accusation against his people. Beloved, consider the accusations, the indictments we read here against the wicked. Christ Jesus, our Lord, was made guilty of every one of those sins. He was accused of plotting violent crime, was he not? He was accused of plotting to overthrow the Roman government. Now he's a king, he's got a kingdom, but it's not of this world. Now is it? You see, he didn't come here to overthrow the Roman government. Indeed, he was already in control of the Roman government. But he kept his mouth shut when the accusation was made. Did he not? And why was that? Because, beloved, he'd been made guilty of our sins. He was accused of lying. He was accused of blasphemy. Now, that's utterly impossible. He is the truth. 
It's impossible for him to lie. There's no guile found in his mouth. But when this charge was made against him, he kept his mouth shut because he'd already been made guilty of the sin of his people. He was accused of having an unholy nature. They said he came in league with the devil, but that's not true now, is it? Not at all. Rather, he came to destroy the power of the devil. But when that accusation was made, he kept his mouth shut because he'd been made guilty of the sin of his people. He'd been made guilty of what we're guilty of, beloved. And then they said his message is a poisonous message. It's got the poison of asps in his message. They said he contradicts the law of Moses. He even healed somebody on the Sabbath day when, in fact, he never one time contradicted the spirit or the letter of the law of Moses. Now, did he? Not only did he keep the law, further to that, he honored the law and magnified it. He healed on the Sabbath day because he is our Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He never contradicted Moses. His message was not a message that had poison of asps. Rather, his message was a message of life. But when that accusation was made, he kept his mouth shut because he'd been made guilty of what we're guilty of, beloved. He took all of that sin, all those accusations, and was made guilty of them. And took all of that sin, and with one sacrifice, he put it away forever, so that it's gone and all of his people were made righteous. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, if you would. Colossians chapter 2. I love this portion. Pray the Lord be pleased to bless it to the hearts of his people afresh this morning. Colossians chapter 2. And look there with me, beginning in verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you, not some, beloved, all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And beloved, his sin-atoning triumph is our triumph. That's the reward of the righteous, being made righteous in Christ because he took our sin and put it away as our substitute. What a reward that is, beloved, the reward of his righteousness being made ours. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Beloved, our Heavenly Father made his darling Son, our Lord and God Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, did no sin, thought no sin, the spotless Son of God made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. <laughs> it's perfect righteousness, beloved. A righteousness holy and completely acceptable to God. And indeed, beloved, we are accepted in the beloved. And so, beloved, His sin-atoning triumph is our triumph. 
That's the reward of the righteous, being made righteous in Christ because he took our sin away and put it away once and for all by his one sacrifice. What a reward that is, beloved, the reward of his righteousness being made ours. My friend, if you ever get a glimpse of that, if you ever get a glimpse of that, that'll be the last time you ever mention rewards in this life or rewards in heaven. For, beloved, he is our great and exceeding reward. And when Christ comes again to judge the earth, he's going to do it in righteousness. When he comes, everyone, everyone without exception, will receive exactly what they deserve. The wicked will receive the exact wages for their sin. All their works will receive an exact wage. Eternal death. Now, some will receive greater damnation. Some will receive greater punishment because they sinned against greater light. A greater revelation of the gospel but they'll receive exactly what they deserve. And the righteous, they'll receive exactly what he deserves in Christ. Now, there are degrees of hell. Some will receive greater damnation, but there'll be no degrees of glory. One won't receive greater reward in heaven than another. Rather, everyone there will receive the exact same reward. And that reward, beloved, is being made just like Christ. It's being with him for eternity. And so when he comes to judge the earth, beloved, though you, you believe it, know it and rejoice in it now, the gospel re reality will be made manifest. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious day that will be for those in Christ. But what an awful day of judgment for those outside of him. Now, if you would turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63. I'll pick up where we left off there. Verse, verse 4. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. That day when the wicked are damned is the day that the righteous will be glorified, and they will rejoice with no worries, no fretting, anticipating what their verdict will be, not worried or troubled if the judge will punish them, for justice has already been satisfied. And that's what awaits the righteous, not condemnation, but rather to be glorified with Christ. And so there's no fear of that day. All there is for the righteous is an anticipated looking forward to that day with great delight. Beloved, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So that a man shall say, verily, there is a reward for me. There, there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. And beloved, our God says of you who are in Christ, you are complete in him and saved to the uttermost. To conclude, let's look at one more portion. Second Peter chapter three. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, 
What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Amen.